All right. Can everybody hear me? Perfect. 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 Okay. Um, I know we just got through praying, but I feel like we can't do enough prayer. So I'm going to pray um, for our time here together and uh, pray that the Lord will bless our time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and graciousness toward us, Lord. Um, you're so good, God. Um, you love us. You take care of us. Um, Lord, I just, I just pray for this time together, Lord. I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would not be my words, Lord, but they would be your words, Lord. And I pray that um, your scriptures would do what they do, Lord, which is pierce the hearts of uh, people, Lord, and that we would walk out of here different than we walked when we came in, Lord. Thank you for everything you give us. In Christ's name, amen. So good morning, Pillar Church. My name's Caleb. I'm a member here at Pillar, and uh, I have the incredible privilege um, to preach God's word to you today. Um, So one of the things um, that has been on my mind lately um, has been this idea of truth. All right. What is truth? Okay. I feel like over the course of, you know, the past couple of months, this idea of truth has really been weighing on my mind. I feel like we live in a world today that really doesn't care a lot about the truth. Um, Whether it's, um, you know, misinformation from this place to this place, or even when you turn on social media, we, we even have things that say this might be true, this might not be true. Okay. What's interesting is, is I looked up, I was like, what are the top 10 or top 11 um, lies? And it turned out that these are what you would call fibs or white lies that people say every day. And I'd ask you to raise your hand if you do this, but I don't want you to lie by not raising your hand. So (laughs) we're all guilty of them. But here's here's the top 11 that I saw. Number one was I'm almost there. I've never done that. It must have gone to my spam folder. I've done that. I've seen that one at work a lot. Um, My phone died. My phone's been acting weird. It wasn't that expensive. I just need five more minutes. I don't really watch TV. I'm almost finished. It's so great to see you. And this one I'm very guilty of. That makes sense. (laughs) And then finally, this one is a little bit more, hits us a little bit more to our core, but I'm fine. However, what's scarier about these fibs or white lies, if you want to call them, is not what's scary about these, but scary about the lies that we either tell ourselves or we tell each other about God. I want to ask, what lies are you telling or what lies are you believing? You may be like me and say you believe something, but your actions tell a different story. Do we say God is good, but do we hold bitterness in our heart against him? Do we say we need him? Do we come into church and say we need him, but we never approach him in prayer? 
I ask you today, what is truth? Do you say you love your neighbor, but in no way show that? I ask you today, what is truth? Is there absolute truth? Or are we held captive to the postmodernism of our day where what's true for you is not true for me? Well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. When I think of this question, what is truth, my mind immediately goes to Jesus in front of Pilate. And Jesus said to him before he was going to be crucified, he said, I was born for this and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asked a question that I think our culture is asking. They might not say it out loud, but I think they're asking this. What is truth? Now, we know if you spend any time in church that Jesus said that I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. Last week, Pastor Eric kicked out this Advent series that we've been doing. Um, If you're not familiar, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which just means coming or arrival. Okay, and during this season, we celebrate the coming and arrival of Jesus. In Eric's text last week, we discovered that the angel Gabriel initially came to Mary, giving her the good news that she would give birth to Emmanuel, literally God with us. Today, we will see in our text. God's truth that he delivered through his vessel, Mary. I have three hopes for you today. My first hope for you today is that if you don't already, that you would leave here believing the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's my that's my ultimate hope is that if you don't believe this, that you would leave here knowing that Jesus is Lord. My second hope is that we would be like Elizabeth, John, and Mary in today's text, full of the Holy Spirit testifying to Jesus' greatness. And finally, I hope that we would be like Mary and with all our being magnify the holy and precious name of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 36. We're going to overlap a little bit of what uh, Eric did last week. Um, to kind of um, get us into what we're saying. And if you look in your Bibles, um, you may see this section as called the Song of Mary, okay? But Mary's not the star of the show here. Jesus is the star of the show. This Song of Mary was prophesied and said by Mary, but it's about Jesus. This entire text is about Jesus, Now, while you're turning, I want to set the stage. At this point, Mary is a very young girl. And one of the things I've noticed that if you see like a lot of reenactments, whether it's on TV or whatever, Mary is seen as a woman who's in her mid-20s. This is not the case. Eric went over this last week. Betrothal age, which is similar to engagement during this time, was between about 12 and 13. Because if you have any Jewish friends to this day, they have something called a bar mitzvah and a ba mitzvah, right? When they turn 13 years old, that's when they become men and women. So in this culture, all right, 
Mary's already betrothed at 12 and a half. All right? And they put her around this age. And while she's heading to her elderly cousin's house, her elderly cousin's already six months pregnant. That's another thing I've noticed in a lot of these reenactments. It'll have like a 25-year-old actress playing Mary, and then it'll have like a 35-year-old actress playing Elizabeth. And that's not what's going on right here. Elizabeth is an elderly woman, old enough to be Mary's grandmother. All right? Thus the miracle of her getting pregnant. And after she's been told that she will conceive and have a son, she heads to Elizabeth's house. So this has only been a couple of days. So if you look at verse 36 in your Bibles, this is the angel Gabriel talking to Mary. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So a couple of things I want to point out. When it says that nothing is impossible with God, in the Elizabeth story, the Jewish reader would have automatically gone to Sarah and Abraham. Sarah was in her, she was 80 plus getting pregnant. And you see in Genesis 18, it says, is anything impossible for the Lord? At the time, I will come back to you in about a year, she'll have a son. And she did. And Jesus even said himself, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, one thing I want to address is you have two miraculous pregnancies. You have Mary and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's pregnancy was miraculous. To be an elderly woman and to have a child was definitely a miracle. But it's not the same type of miracle. Okay? It's not the same type of miracle. All right? God has um, allowed elderly women to get pregnant before, like you saw with Sarah like I just showed. What happened with Mary is something that has only been done once and has never been done again, okay? Which is the Holy Spirit conceiving in a woman and having a child. Only only happened once, okay? And you see Mary's response right before she goes to Elizabeth. She says, see, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. It's incredible maturity for a 12 or 13 year old when you say after you've been told that to say, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever you want. And then she left. So verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zachariah's house, Elizabeth's husband, and greeted Elizabeth. Now, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? And the baby inside her, what's his name? John, okay? So there's a couple of things that I think are incredible right here. So when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the baby inside her, the six-month-old baby inside her, jumped, leaped inside. Now, I usually don't do this because it's usually not relevant, but I think it's relevant here. The word here for leaped is skip tao literally skipping the baby is so joyful to hear not just mary's voice but the one who's inside mary the one who's inside mary's womb and it's interesting 
Because John the Baptist has a six-month-old um, baby inside of uh, Elizabeth's womb is doing what his life would be devoted to, which is pointing to Jesus, glorifying Jesus. And this brought me back to when John, in John, uh, John chapter 3, he said, He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who in this case is John, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And right here when it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, the word here Luke uses multiple times to denote that this is about to be a prophetic utterance. All right? prophecies about to say so this elderly woman is coming with a spirit-filled prophecy and it says elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed okay the word exclaimed was used all throughout chronicles and corporate worship she's literally worshiping the child that's inside of mary at this moment And then she says, how could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So already Elizabeth recognizes that this isn't some normal baby inside Mary. This is her Lord. This is her Lord. And Lord throughout the New Testament is the title given to Jesus. And it would bring the reader back to Psalms where the psalmist says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Right here, she's recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is God. And she says, for you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. This exuberant joy. And then she said, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And this is in contrast to what her own husband didn't do. If you remember a little bit of the story last week, okay, when Zechariah was told, hey, your wife is going to have a baby. He went, what? And doubted. And God cursed him during that time with muteness. And this, and this is like an elderly man, someone who's a priest, someone who had spent time with God. And this is a 12 or 13-year-old woman who automatically believes, and she's blessed for it. And this brings us to the Song of Mary. Sometimes, some, in some of your Bibles, it might be referred to as the Magnificat. That's in church history how it's referred to. And it just comes off of the very first verb in the first verse where it says, magnify, Okay. This song is similar to the one of Hannah, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, that we'll look out later. This is a praise song and a prophecy about the Lord. Mary is full of the Holy Spirit, okay? And we know this because Peter, later on, makes this statement about prophecy. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. No prophecy ever came by the will of man is said, Men and women spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the first half of the Magnificat 
is Mary naming personal reasons for magnifying God. I ask you here today, do you have personal reasons for magnifying God? Do we? And she starts out saying, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, we already established who is Elizabeth talking about when she said the mother of my Lord. We're talking about Jesus. My soul magnifies Jesus. And why should we magnify Jesus? Here's some truths about who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things and by Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that Jesus might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether making things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus's blood shed on the cross. If that doesn't make you want to worship, I don't know what will. John talks about Jesus when he says, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And he, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Jesus and apart from Jesus. Not one thing was created that has been created. And then Paul talks about him in Philippians, who Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited and said he Jesus emptied himself by take by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity and when he Jesus had come as a man Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross for this reason God has highly exalted Jesus and has given Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'm going to do one more. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by Jesus's powerful word. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that Jesus became superior to the angels, just as the name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So right here, Mary says, so these are the reasons why we should magnify Jesus. These are the reasons why we should make Jesus's name great. And Mary gives her own reasons for why she magnifies the Lord. She says, I magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And we see in Titus, Jesus is referred to as our God and Savior. 
in Titus 2.13. And she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, and my soul magnifies the Lord. And soul and spirit here are synonyms. And what she's saying is, is with all my being, I magnify the Lord. You think of what the greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And you think about it. She right here is loving God with all her being. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. And Jesus said, this is the appropriate type of worship. In John four, he says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. Okay. So why is she magnifying the Lord? Verse 48. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. And this word favor, Pastor Eric talked about it last week. Does anybody remember what that word favor means? Grace. Grace. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. And what's interesting and what's incredible about all this is God didn't choose, you know, some princess of Egypt or some princess of Rome. He chose a 12 year old peasant girl. To give birth to literally the creator of the universe. So this would right here, this humble condition of his servant would bring the reader back to 1 Samuel in the Song of Hannah. If you're not familiar with the Song of Hannah, Hannah was a barren woman. She couldn't have children. And she would cry out and cry out to the Lord um, for her to have a child. And finally he heard her prayer. And she gave birth to the prophet Samuel. But she says, making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. So right here, it would bring the reader back to the Old Testament. And then she says, surely from now on, looking in um, verse 48, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And you see this prophecy fulfilled in Luke chapter 11. While he was saying these things, while Jesus was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. And, you know, I can't help but think my wife and I, um, we had our, our first child this year. And I think about how much of a blessing he is to me. And, you know, as most parents, I think he's a blessing to everybody. But, you know, I can only imagine the blessing of raising Jesus. I mean, literally, you know, you have these conversations with your friends. If you could sit down with anybody, who would it be? And, you know, for most Christians, it'd be like Jesus. And, you know, imagine raising him and being around him for 30 years. Okay? And she says, 49, in verse 49, because the mighty one, okay, has done great things for me, and his name is holy. So when she asked, why should I magnify the Lord? Because for one, he looked on me with grace and favor on the humble condition of his servant. 
And now all generations will call her blessed. And because he's done great things. Has the Lord done great things for you? Has he done great things for you? Because he has done great things for me. And his name is holy. His name is holy. Holy, set apart, different. And then she says, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. And this is this is bringing us back to the Psalms where it says, for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Aren't you glad that his love endures forever? Because my love doesn't endure forever, unfortunately. I feel like many times our love apart from Christ is very fickle. It's circumstantial, but not the Lord. The Lord's love endures forever. Psalms 103:11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him. Amen. So you see right here. Some of you guys might have a uh, this might split off a section in your Bible. It depends. But right here, she really starts to get into the prophecy of her song. Okay. now, if you notice in verse 51, um, I don't know if you all have noticed this, but in verse 51, she switches up from using the present tense to the past tense. Y'all notice that? She switches from saying his mercy is from generation to generation. And then 51, he says he has done right. It's past tense. OK, these are prophecies about what God has done, but also about what Jesus will do. And the reason she's using the past tense here is because in the Old Testament, OK, it's called the prophetic past. If you wanted to say a prophecy that you were so assured was going to happen, you were so confident it was going to happen, you would put it in the past tense. So if you've ever been familiar with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now, when Isaiah wrote that, had Jesus been crucified yet? No. But he's using the prophetic past to let you know, hey, this is going to happen. And I'm letting you know these truths that Mary is about to speak, some have already happened and some will happen later. Okay, so verse 51, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Okay, all throughout the Psalms, it talks about how God has done mighty things with his arm. Okay, he's using this imagery and saying Jesus will do the same thing. We know Jesus is powerful. Okay, we know Jesus is powerful. Okay, and we also know this, that he gives. That he resists the proud and gives grace to who? The humble, the humble. And we know that Jesus knows our hearts. And right here you see this first. There's three reversals that you're going to see in these next couple of verses. Reversals that the world say it should be like this. Okay, but the scripture says, nope, it's going to be turned on its head. And the first one we see, okay. 
is a moral reversal, okay? He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Many times in our society, who do we usually see that's flourishing? A lot of times it's the proud, right? Many times. But right here we see that he will scatter the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus is after our hearts. Okay? How many times do you see in the New Testament where he sniffed out the intentions of the Pharisees quickly? Because he knew their hearts. Even in the Beatitudes, when he would interpret the law of Moses, he would say, hey, you see in the law it says it's against the law to murder, right? Well, I tell you this, that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Because he's getting at the heart of what those commandments are. Okay? Right here we see a social reversal in verse 32, or uh, verse 52, excuse me. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And right here, this would bring the reader back to 1 Samuel 2, 7 through 10, where it says, The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world on them. And you see in a messianic psalm that's about Jesus in Psalms chapter 2, it says, Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's the Messiah. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king Jesus on Zion, my holy mountain. And there will be a time, we're talking about Advent, about when Jesus first comes, there will be a time where he comes back. And when he comes back, all the kings of the earth will tremble. Because like I showed you in Philippians, okay, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And then later on in that psalm, it says, pay homage to the Son, Jesus, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. And then verse 53, verse 53, you see a, you see a spiritual material reversal. He has satisfied the hungry with good things, and he has sent away the rich empty. And you see all throughout the scriptures, God's promises for the poor. And it might not always be monetary things, right? If you see right here, Psalms 107:9, for he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good the hungry with good things. And then Jesus even said, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled." But this is what he says about the rich. "But woe to you who are rich, because you have received your comfort." Woe to you who are full now because you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now because you will mourn and weep. And this is talking about putting your reliance on riches instead of Jesus. Okay? And it continues saying, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy. Aren't you glad that Jesus has remembered his mercy towards you? 
you know, one of the ways that I've always been taught about mercy and grace is, is grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. And mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And I'm so thankful that God has remembered his mercy towards us. And may he continue to remember his mercy toward us. To Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And he has helped Israel and him also um, speaking to Abraham and his descendants. Okay, up until Jesus coming, this was this promise was just for Jews. But because of Jesus, through Jesus, the New Testament tells us that we have received the promises of Abraham. The promises of Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ. So these are for us. These are for us. And then it says Mary stayed with her about three more months and then she returned home. Now, everything I've said today are truths about what Jesus has done. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is everlasting. He is God incarnate. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead and has ascended into heaven. And he's coming back someday. He's coming back. We've talked about Advent earlier, but there will be a second Advent. One where Jesus will come for all. And my question is, is what will you do with these truths? I can't help but think about Pontius Pilate when he said, what is truth? And Jesus said, anybody who listens to my voice is hearing the truth, right? I can't help but think, what did Pilate do with that? The scriptures don't say, but he did send Jesus to be crucified. And I ask you today, what will you do with these truths? Will you discard them as fairy tales or myths? Will you take the postmodern approach and say, hey, that's good for you, Caleb. It's, it's not good for me. Religion's good for you. You know, faith in Jesus is good for you, but it's not for me. Or, and this is, I feel like, is the most common approach, at least for me. Will you apathetically sit there with these truths and do nothing about it? Or, or maybe... Will you allow these truths to saturate your heart? Will you allow, and the imagery used in the Bible is taking a heart of stone, okay? Think of a rock and turning it into a heart of flesh. Taking your hard heart and softening it. For those of y'all who believe and already are believers, how are you letting the gospel saturate your heart? How are you allowing these truths to saturate your heart? Are they, are they carrying on when you leave here? When you go home? Does it, does it change the way you treat your spouse? Does it change the way you parent your kids? Does it change the way you move in and out of the workplace? Let's pray. God, I'm in awe of how incredible you are, how much you love us, what you do for us. Despite our rebellion, despite our faithlessness, God, you still love us. You still pursue us, Lord. Lord, I pray for these incredible people that are here. 
Lord, that whatever repentance needs to take place, Lord, that you would grant them a heart for repentance, Lord. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you as Lord, who doesn't know that Jesus loves them and hasn't put their faith in your son, that you would change their heart, Lord, that you wouldn't allow them to leave this place without putting their faith in Jesus. I thank you for your goodness and your graciousness toward us, Lord. I thank you for your spirit. Spirit, move in this place, Lord, and change our hearts. You're good, God. In Christ's name, amen.